This is Inform Your Resistance with PRA, Political Research Associates. Tune in twice a month to hear experts, researchers, journalists, academics, and movement strategists explain some of the most significant contemporary threats to democracy from the mainstream and far right. Together, we break down the so what of these movements so that you can inform your resistance in the fight for a just and inclusive democratic society. Political Research Associates has been producing rigorous, long-form analysis on the intersections of right-wing strategy for over 40 years. With Inform Your Resistance, we distill what you need to know most. Find us wherever you get your podcasts. I'm your host, Koki Mendes, Communications Director here at PRA. In this episode, I'm joined by Daryl Lamont Jenkins to talk all things Antifa with someone who has spent his many decades giving American fascists a really hard time. We talked about the ways in which grassroots fascist organizing has changed over the past few years and the role that truth and evidence plays in rooting out fascist groups from our communities. Daryl Lamont Jenkins is the founder and executive director of One People's Project, or OPP an anti-hate organization that researches, monitors, and reports on right-wing groups and individuals that seek to polarize communities. Founded in 2000 and working under the motto, Hate Has Consequences, OPP has become a go-to resource on such matters and has been instrumental in the fight against hate. Jenkins has appeared on A Current Affair, The Montel Williams Show, CNN, Fox News, MSNBC's Rachel Maddow Show, AM Joy with Joy Reid, ABC's 2020, and in countless newspaper and magazine articles, as well as documentaries focusing on Antifa's fight against the so-called alt-right. Daryl, thanks so much for joining us today on the podcast. I'm glad to be here. I'm glad to be here. Thank you for having me. Of course. So let's get into it. So my first question is just to situate where you are. Um, where are you located and what is the local context there for fascist organizing and visibility? And then on the flip side, anti-fascist organizing and momentum. Well, that's weird. It's, um, I'm from New Brunswick, New Jersey. And when you're talking about this part of the country, you're talking about an area where, as I've always said, um, the fash, the right-wingers are pretty much afraid of their own shadow here. I mean, they pretty much um, are neutralized when they go across state lines into New Jersey. And you start dealing with that more and more in the Northeast. The problem is, um, in recent years, They've been feeling their oats a little bit. At the very least, um, they feel very comfortable doing stickers all over the um, all over the city when we never seen that before. Or they will do a flash mob. They will do a flash mob where they just six or seven of them hold a rally in the middle of the night when no one's here, when no one's on the road that can confront them or whatever. But that's really much the totality of what 
we deal with primarily. I mean, I think the most we ever saw any of the far right here was really actually just a couple of weeks ago when Candace Owens was um, speaking at Rutgers University and they thought that they were going to come out and try to cause some grief to any Antifa that was, um, that was coming out to protest that. And they really didn't do anything except stand there. And while we yelled and screamed at them. But, but that's pretty much where, um, where we're at when it comes to the right in central Jersey, South Jersey, they get a little bit more going for them. Um, you had one, um, for like 30 years, you had the Atlanta city quote unquote skinheads who was considered one of the more violent, um, hate groups in the state. Um, but they're older now, but, and some of them are gone. Some of them passed away. Some of them are in jail. Uh, but you still have groups um, like the Proud Boys in South Jersey. You have um, some clan out that's some, some, but overall, and you do have, and you do have some of your um, more also ranish kind of groups like uh, the New Jersey European Heritage Association or Patriot Front might be down there or most of, or, or more to the um, active out here is White Lives Matter. White Lives Matter um, does show up. As a matter of fact, I should point out that back in January, there was a benefit show for my organization, One People's Project, where a where one member of White Lives Matter decided to smoke bomb uh, the, uh, the event from the outside and then run off in his car. Came back later, tried to pepper spray people. And um, he's in jail now. He's, he's, he's awaiting trial on... Um, for attacking the show. Um, his name is Nicholas Mucci. Um, we also have, um, in, in regards to the lone gunman, so to speak, we also have a guy named Paul Miller, who is also in jail, but he had, before he went to jail, he made a name for himself as an online Nazi troll by the name of Gypsy, who goes by the name Gypsy Crusader. He, um, got under everybody's skin to the point that he's sitting in the jail cell right now. So. Uh, but that's what we have. And, and the more, and if you notice the um, ones who are the most prominent are the ones who are the most locked up. I think we are in an area where we're comfortable enough, where we can get some work done. But in order to advance that work, sometimes we just have to venture out, not just stay here in the state, but venture out and do um, the things that we need to do um, and help folks out who are, who are having even a worse time of it than we are. Yeah, that's interesting. I mean, it's it's similar to sort of the performative activity we're seeing up here in southern New England, but it's great to have a, a base of operations where you can sort of recede to do your planning um, rather than being in the thick of it. But here in southern New England, PRA is based in Massachusetts. We're seeing a marked increase of on-the-ground, largely performative neo-Nazi activity, mostly in the form of banner drops, flyering, like you mentioned, small demonstrations. Can you talk about this trend that we're seeing, sort of the conversion of um, online organizing and activity into these in-person activities? What is your sense of the overall scale of neo-Nazi organizing today compared to, for instance, a decade ago? Well, a decade ago, they would actually announce whenever they was going to be at a certain location. Um, and basically what that would mean is we would just come out and protest them. They will stand behind a phalanx of police officers and yell and scream at everybody. 
um, since Trump got elected, they have um, felt they felt first they felt their oaths where they felt that they was more a part of the mainstream where they didn't have to hide behind the Felix the cops where they felt comfortable um, engaging physically with um, with anti-fascists, which was fine by us, actually. Um, and they thought that they had basically the um, power of the White House behind them. And they were right. They were right. I mean, we now have elected officials that are, in fact, white supremacists. I mean, it's nothing new, but it's definitely jarring in 2023. Uh, after Charlottesville, however, it was time to reel it back um, as far as they was concerned, no more public rallies like it was. I mean, unless you're the National Socialist Movement, no more public announced rallies, I should say. Now it was flash mobs. We just show up when we show up. Um, they put stickers all over the um, all over the place. But that is pretty much um, the the gist of what the more hardcore racists or neo-fascist groups do. Other groups who are more ingratiated into the mainstream, they would try, um, they would use that mainstream to try to push back on any kind of opposition towards their beliefs and their ideals. That's what the Proud Boys did. And what um and the Proud Boys were really successful in maintaining a presence where the hate groups that they were usually associated with from time to time could not. That was until January 6th happened. Then they all had to reel it back. Now it's changed from that to a group of people who say they were liberals or, or are currently liberals who feel that we need to start uniting, uh, uniting with that um, far-right element in order to take on a common enemy, be it the government or what have you. It's a ploy. It's a game. Um, we call them the dirtbag left. Um, but it's the latest thing that they have done to try to reinvent themselves so that they can remain in the mainstream. You still have your um, groups out there who are doing the flash mob thing and such. In fact, we're quite familiar with what's going on in New England with the Nationalist Social Club and what they did in Providence to a bookstore there. and. And uh, they didn't announce that they was going to protest. They just showed up, just like they just showed up at a um at a school, um, in um New Hampshire when I was out there, and um they tried to protest that surrounding um I guess I believe it was a transgender issue, and uh, but that's the kind of thing that we're dealing with. They're sneaking around to try to do what they want to do, and that's actually a plus for us. That means that. They have something to be afraid of, and we don't. So as long as that is the case, we can go on the offense at any time <laughs> and handle this the way we should. That doesn't mean we have to get ourselves locked up or, or in some kind of um, criminal or financial hot water. Um, it just means that we have the advantage, and we got to take advantage of that. <laughs> That's an interesting point, sort of the the ways in which the far right has to be sort of careful about exposing their plans beforehand and what that signals about sort of the legitimacy of the actions. And so, you know, if it gets to the point where these organizers 
are announcing their plans beforehand and um, know that they can act with impunity, that'll be a real a real note to the rest of us, right? Like the sh- the power is shifting even further to the right. Um, it'll be a real flag that we're we're losing, right? We're losing the ability to be on the offensive and we're now on our back foot. I think that's a really interesting way to characterize those activities. In terms of trends, you know, are you seeing the same sort of composition of people, the same numbers of folks whose activism is changing, moving on and offline, um, who's organizing, on the ground organizing is shifting, but it's largely the same number of people? It's the same size of a movement? Are you seeing growth of the movement, especially after um, 2016 in Trump's election? You know, what in terms of the, not just the ways in which the far right is is act, acting in public, is it the same folks that you've always been keeping an eye on, or are you seeing new faces and more of them? Well, there's new faces, but I think the only reason why there's new faces is because um, the old faces have just simply gotten older, and they moved on, and or they died, or they got locked up, or what have you. Um, However, the approaches are different. Um, I will say, let me let me walk that back a little bit. I will say that we also are talking about fascists of color. We do have that dynamic coming in. And the and they make themselves out as useful idiots to the um to the far right because what um and to the a mainstream right who wants to try to ingratiate themselves to this element because Whenever you're talking about the Proud Boys, whenever you're talking about um, any kind of um, like the person I believe was um, one of the mass shooters. He was Mexican, but he was into Nazism. Mm -hmm. They use that. um, They they use they use that to dismiss the idea that Nazism or um, fascism is playing a part in um, in whatever action is being taken. The Proud Boys can't possibly be racist because they had a black leader, you know. I mean, you're actually calling this black person a white supremacist. How ridiculous can you get? Well, we got infiltrated by one a couple of years ago. Not too ridiculous. So so, um, so we do have that dynamic in play. We definitely have that dynamic in play. So, um, but... I will also say in regards to growing, I don't really see that. I mean, a lot of people was disagree with me on that, but the truth of the matter is they've just gotten louder. Everything is going on now because they think that they have an opportunity to do what they needed to do all this time for years. I mean, I remember this, um, I remember listening to one of their podcasts and, um, one of the uh, white supremacists that I've known for a long time in Pennsylvania was saying how it is finally happening. We are now living in that time when we that we said we was building up to all along. Now we are mainstream. Um, I know people that will talk to um that will talk to me and remind me that William Pierce, the founder of the uh, National Alliance, the writer of the Turner Diaries, the author of the Turner Diaries, is to say, um. He, um, this is the kind of thing that he was pushing towards. What we are seeing now is what William Pierce wanted, you know? So everything that is going on right now is kind of like we expected it. But the thing that's missing 
is the growth. The thing that they did not anticipate is the pushback. I don't know why they didn't anticipate it, but they did. They did not, I mean. Um, and that's what's really, that's what's keeping the growth down. Us pushing back when they didn't expect us to push back. So while they're loud, while they're a little more emboldened, um, they also know that, um, they go too far and all of that falls apart. Case in point, January 6th, case in point, Charlottesville, um, it is the reason why for all their bravado about how they're going to kick everybody's behind, how they're going to, um, how they're going to engage in all these, um, nefarious things ranging from un unconstitutional laws being passed to, um, actively killing people, quote unquote, hang Mike Pence. Um, they really haven't, they really haven't because they know that they're not that strong and they probably never will be. Um, but that all depends on us. That all depends on how much um, pushback we're going to give them. Um, I talk about the laws that are being passed. And we think about the book bannings that conservatives are engaged in right now. Um, we really should be doing something about that. We really should be pushing back on that. Or rather, the people that we keep electing into office should be doing something about that because that's what we put them there for. And yet, we get token approaches to it. And if that's what the right expects us to, um, if that's the way the right expects us to act, they're going to keep on doing it until they do find themselves in a position where they can harm us further. What we're going to do at that point remains to be seen, but hopefully we don't have to see it. That's all I can say on that. <laughs> well, if that's not a call to action, I don't know what is. Um, that's No, I think that's a really useful distinction mm -hmm. between sort of changing demographics on the far right in far right movements versus changes in in numbers and sheer growth. I mean, it's it's encouraging. You know, you said lots of people will disagree with you. I, I will say that PRA uh, research analyst Ben Lorber agrees with you that we're not seeing more people. We're just seeing them show up in different ways. Uh, right. And so it's encouraging. Right. Um, and, and the pushback, as you name it, is vital and we have to keep doing it. Um, and I think this is an acute moment in which we cannot forget that imperative. Yeah, I should note that me and um, Chloe Cooper um, wrote an article for PRA about those neo-fascists that come in brown. Mm -hmm. And it is definitely um, worth reading if anybody gets a look at it. Well, it's definitely a great piece. We'll link to it in the show notes. Lots of people mm -hmm. appreciate your analysis and that piece with Chloe, certainly. Um, so, so sticking with the importance of pushing back and maintaining resistance, what are some of the most powerful interventions available to us as individual anti-fascists and as a larger pro-democracy movement? I think the strongest thing that we have is, I mean, and, and this I have to stress, it's more than just getting out there with a placard and standing in front of a building for two hours. Yeah, that's fine. That amplifies the message, but it can't be the totality. The strongest thing we have is the fact is the people out there, really, because you provide them with the information and help them to understand how they relate to the, this information and how it affects this information. Folks have spent their time and their lives 
um, working for what it is that they have and building things for their families and for their future are going to balk at whatever it is they have otherwise been seeing. I mean, it's one thing to see, say, a Donald Trump um, threaten the lives of um, or our democracy or what have you, I should say. It's another to show people how. And once you do that, things change. I mean, if there's one thing that I can um I can point out is how many times have we seen police officers associated with the Proud Boys? I could tell you or or other um public serv um public servants. Um I, I I think about what happened in Pennsylvania a few years ago. There was a fire department lieutenant in the town, in one town. He was associated with the Proud Boys, went to a couple of their meetings and um, was in pictures with them. Um, I believe it was Philadelphia Antifa that, um, that exposed them. And people started approaching that fire department for, um, and asked what's going to happen with this guy. And they said, well, he has his right to speak and he has his right to associate with whomever he wishes. So we're not going to do anything. You know what the city did? Shut down their fire department. That is what the right is afraid of. That kind of pushback. That kind of pushback. Being removed from positions That's of power. The strength. Yeah. Yes. So if you let people know how much these characters impact on you and yours, your society, your community, they will step up and say, no, we can't have this. It's happened before and it will happen again. I mean, I think that's a really community-oriented approach um, and one that clearly is effective. It does require robust communication and a lot of on-the-ground door-knocking, uh, you know, flyering. But it also requires a lot of... We got to make sure we got to have... Uh, that our research is on, is on point, too, mm -hmm. because um, you don't want to just ex um, accuse somebody of being a Nazi when they're not, for example. I mean, you know, you got... We got to make sure that we can make our case. And that's one of the reasons why um, One People's Project has been successful, because that has always been what we did. I'm a journalist by vocation, and I've always been um, about just making sure people got the facts. I mean, they say that I lie. I mean, the right always says that I lie about this. Is that No, I don't. I don't. You, <laughs> The only people that call me liars are you guys trying to convince people that I'm a liar. But the truth of the matter is, um, if there's anything that I have gotten wrong, they're more than welcome to, um, to, to correct me and I will put it out there. But the truth of the but the truth of things, I would just say that the more factual you are and the less you are moved by propaganda, the more effective you will be. You don't want to get caught up in the narrative. You don't want to just be about the narrative. You want to be about making sure people understand what is going on out there and who is involved. And when you, when you have a reputation of being honest, being truthful about the things that you are advocating for, folks will be all over you because you are showing yourself to be credible. You get caught up in the narrative. You get caught up in propaganda. I mean, let's face it. If, um, let's say, if you notice, I don't call the Proud Boys white supremacists. 
I don't call them that because it's not, it's not as accurate as, I mean, I mean, despite what I said earlier, even though they have a, um, even though they had a bl black, um, or, or rather a black Afro-Cuban, um, leader, uh, that, that right there, um, just basically for the sake of argument keeps me away from calling the white supremacists, but I will call them fascists. I will call them fascists just so I don't get caught up in their, um, little, um, trappings of, uh, not being called out as such. I can make the case that they're white supremacists adjacent. <laughs> and there's a lot of white supremacists that are in the Proud Boys, especially now because um, the Proud Boys have decided to just go feral since January 6th and just attack everybody, Jews, the LGBTQ community, and, and so on. But, um, but overall, I try to make sure I'm nuanced in my, in my characterization of Proud Boys and similar groups, only because it will help people to understand a little bit more where we're coming from. To borrow from Gen Z, you make sure you have receipts. Mm-hmm. Um, Absolutely. I think this is a great transition. I'd like you to talk a little bit more and tell our listeners about One People's Project. What do you all do in what roles and how can folks get involved in the kind of anti-fascist research that you're doing? Well, One People's Project is an organization that was founded in 2000. It was actually something that was born out of a white supremacist rally that was being that was being held in Jersey. We didn't see too many of those in this state. And when one showed up, we said, OK, we're going to get to know these people. And then after the rally, we really got to know these folks because we said we're going to keep this going. We, we had started a website to um, basically coordinate around the rally. And after the rally, we said we're going to keep the um, website going. We're going to keep on adding new information about not just who we saw in 2000, but who else we see um, around the country. And we didn't just focus on white supremacists. White supremacists just happens to be the loudest people that we deal with. So, so we are pretty much known for going after them, but we also go after anybody that's kind of like on the right that can be dubious, can be questionable, can be dangerous. Um, I um, infiltrated in 2001, I was um, infiltrating a group of anti-abortion activists that were protesting outside a clinic in Columbus, Ohio. I, um, I got to know them. I got to um, document them. And you had two different factions. You had one faction that was from a church um, in Columbus called the Holy Family Church, which was run by a um, Reverend Kevin Lutz, who, by the way, is um, among the clergymen who was um, listed for um, a sexual molestation of a minor um, a couple of years ago. And then you had the faction that was really a concern, the crew that was kind of like a cell of the Army of God, a group that was... Um, notorious for wanting to kill and have killed abortion providers. So if I was to just focus on the racists and the bigots and all that, I would have missed all that. And I don't think, I don't think we can be effective if we're missing pieces of the puzzle. And that's one of the pieces. Daryl, can you talk a little bit about the size of the organization and can folks volunteer with One People's Project? 
if if they're inspired to do the work that you're doing, how can they how can they link? Well, but we um we're a small organization. There's only but a few of us, and it's always been that. Um, basically, because we're not this on the ground army that goes out and um tries to um protest everything we see. That's not what we do. Um, we're just ordinary Joes and Janes just going around. I'm trying to gather information about who's who and what's what. And when people say they want to um, they want to work with us in that, that's what we're looking for. People who want to volunteer their time in their local area and do um, do the real research, <laughs> not just stuff that you saw with a YouTube video um, about uh, what's going on out there and quite possibly write about it if you're so inclined. Do videos about it if you're so inclined. That's what we're looking for. We're looking for people who want to um, contribute that way. Um, if you would like to organize, if you'd like to set up um, events and stuff that will promote anti-fascism and unity amongst our um, community members, we're in that direction as well. We are really supportive of that, and we, um, we want to do more public events such as that. And by the way, despite that we're not um, as I said before, we're not a group that really goes out to protest. We will help organize protests. We're looking for people who want to be active either as um, researchers or reporters. And when the um, political conventions happen, we're really going to look for people who are on the ground and want to help us out with a podcast that we're going to be putting together out there. So, um, But we're still piecing that together. So um, we'll keep you posted on that. Yeah, it seems like there's a lot of energy for doing this work right now, especially with after January 6th, the amount of people who sort of turned into at-home researchers figuring out who, mm-hmm. you know, who's who in the footage from from the insurrection on that day. Right. You've been doing this for a while now. Would you say 30 years? I would say um, I started in 87. I started doing it in 87. If you want to be honest, I started it when I was a kid. But... <laughs> Because um, as I always tell people, I was always curious about where those who were opposing us during the civil rights movement, where did they go? Mm-hmm. They did not and then, disappear. And then you, yeah, and and the Klan reminded us when I started seeing stories about modern day Klan, I was like, okay, uh, I guess I'd like to keep an eye on them. <laughs> and and that's exactly what I have been doing pretty much all my life, but for real, ever since um. I saw them on that infamous Oprah show with the um with the neo Nazis um calling themselves skinheads. Um that's when I really started documenting them. And also I've been I was documenting um talk radio because you had one talk show host who used to let neo Nazis leave their contact information on his airwaves. Um the person that he followed was Rush Limbaugh. So it was kind of like yeah, this is this was mainstream enough where you had to stand up and take notice. And the biggest and the biggest roadblock would be those who didn't really want to do anything about them. In the name of free speech. I've been doing it for a long time and I've just sat back and just maintained records and uh, maintained audio and video and then everything started to become relevant as of um 2000 when we started and then really relevant as of 2016. Mhm. So you've been doing this for 40 years. Mm-hmm. What keeps you motivated to stay in the fight, especially when your work makes you a highly visible target of the far right? Well, for a long time, I wasn't wasn't all that visible. <laughs> I really was uh, just 
sitting around just doing my thing and then realize that, you know, somebody's going to have to be a spokesperson for all of this. Someone's going to have to be the one that tells everybody what's going on because you have a lot of anti-fascists that want to stay underground. And, and while I can appreciate that, I also think it's not fair to those trying to figure all of this out that are in the mainstream and that are just in your communities going, what the hell's going on? So I said, okay. Um, I was doing public access stuff all over the place, music wise in the music scene. So people already knew who I was. I was writing letters to the editor and writing columns. So no reason why I should hide. So I didn't. And what keeps me going? The fact that we're winning. The fact that we are really successful in the work that we have done over the past um, 20 years as one people's project. And uh, the fact that there's nowhere else to go but up. I mean, what did, I mean, they've, they've been threatening. They have threatened. I mean, I'm dealing with a uh, one of the um one of those characters from uh, the New Jersey European Heritage Association, who is trying to rope me into a lawsuit he has with another anti-fascist, or rather, my organization. And but the but the thing is, now we got support. We got people helping us out. Antifa International helped us out with their um anti-fascist um um legal defense fund. Uh, where they help out a lot of um, anti-fascists from around the globe in whatever kind of legal or um, social political drama that they're dealing with. So, so, um, so the things that really keep me going is, um, you know, this is what I do. Number one, this is all I've done. Um, and number two, those who appreciate it that want to um, keep the mission going. That's great. I think that's a great note to end on. Uh, you know, we have a similar tension at PRA, you know, being visible, doing the work, being a model for other folks who want to get involved in the fight um, and keeping ourselves safe. And it is such a continued tension when you do this kind of work. Uh, so I just want to say mm -hmm. thank you. I think you've, you know, been a huge spokesperson for anti-fascist organizing in the U.S. Uh, and we need people like you who are um, doing the hard work of representing a movement, one that does show up in various forms in different uh, spheres of life, including online, in person, in communities. Um, and it's it's amazing to watch you do your work. Thank you. Thank you. I really do appreciate it. Thanks so much, Daryl. Thank you. Thank you for listening to Inform Your Resistance with Political Research Associates. Today's episode was hosted by me, Koki Mendes. Our producer and fact checker is Olivia Lawrence Wileman. Harini Rajagopalan created our communications and marketing materials, and Frank Lawrence, our music. If you haven't already, rate, review, and subscribe. And the best thing you can do to help us is tell your comrades about the pod. Resisting authoritarianism is just better with friends. Until next time. <laughs>